This is exactly right. It's a fascinating place, Monaco. Indeed, it's a strange place. And it has, I think, a higher ratio of police to residents than any other country in the world. Michael Waldman is a British filmmaker who made a documentary series about Monaco for the BBC. What they did was film in the prison. The governor, when I asked him about who tended to be the prisoners from where they came, he said quite a lot were from Eastern Europe. He mentioned Hungarians, Serbians, Bulgarians. And when I said, well, why, given the level of policing and the extent of the surveillance, would any criminal come to Monaco to steal? He said, very simple and direct answer, he said, because there's a lot of money here. I'm Natalia Antalava. I'm a journalist based in Eastern Europe, and I'm going to take you into the world of Serbia's most brazen jewel thieves. The most daring and successful diamond thieves in the world. 30 to 40 seconds, in, out. They've stolen half a billion dollars worth of valuables. Two well-dressed men strolled into an exclusive jewelry store in London and walked out with $66 million in jewels. They're called the Pink Panthers. They're a loosely connected crew of overeducated, underemployed, ambitious young people who rose from the ashes of the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s to commit elaborate smash-and-grab heists all across the globe, often in broad daylight. This is Infamous International, the Pink Panther's story. Episode 7, The Curious Case of Inspector Malberger. If ever there was a place designed to appeal to a Pink Panther, it's Monaco. Monaco is a tiny protectorate of France, less than one square mile of Mediterranean paradise. It's known for its casinos, its royalty, its movie stars, the Grand Prix racing, beaches, and extremely accommodating tax laws. Grace Kelly made the place famous in the movie To Catch a Thief, then married the real-life prince. The rich flock there, attracted by its reputation as a safe haven for their money. As the writer W. Somerset Maugham famously said, it's a sunny place for shady people. A whole lot of things in Monaco are illegal, which in other places nobody would notice. There's rules about what you could, you know, you can't walk around topless. I'm talking about men. Um, there is all sorts of strange rules that try to make the place of clean and decent in their view. And of course, crime free. It is a strange place. And if you go there and look around, you cannot be on any street corner and not see that there is a discreet camera or sometimes indiscreet camera or cameras observing your every move depends on your position as to what you think about a place where you can't move without the eyes and the cameras of the state looking at you. Um, if you're a very strong civil libertarian, you might think this is sort of not desirable. If you're a very rich person wanting to flaunt your diamonds as you walked from restaurant to apartment, it's rather comforting. 
the economy is based on people coming and spending money. So what they do is attract not only residents who come, and they come in many cases because they don't have to pay tax in Monaco, but they also then spend money as do visitors, whether it be in the casino or shops or posh hotels or restaurants or whatever. So what they want is people with money to come and spend it. All that money, all that flaunting. Monaco has an obvious appeal for the Pink Panthers. Dana Kennedy is a national reporter with the New York Post, who spent 15 years based in Europe. She lived in Nice, just 13 miles from the Monaco border. And she got to know the place pretty well. I was based in the south of France, and one reason why I know a bit about Jewelry Heist and why the Pink Panthers are on my radar is because the south of France is really one of the main places where the Pink Panthers go to pull off their incredible heist. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was filmed in the south of France. It took place there and is all about con artists and shysters and pulling off a fast one. It's sort of an epicenter for too much money, too many con men, too many police looking the other way. For Dana Kennedy, Monaco is a strange mix of cultures. I'll never forget someone who said that Monaco is like France if it were run by Americans. And what I mean by that is when you go over there, you don't see a lot of this sort of fussy French cultural stuff that you might see in France. People still speak French, of course, and it's beautiful and there's beautiful food and beautiful architecture, but it's something a little bit different. It's also one of the world's biggest police states. Before the rest of the world had CCTV cameras, Monaco had like about a hundred cameras per capita. There are cameras at every possible inch of Monaco. Monaco even has its own famous curse. The Principality of Monaco is thought to have had a curse on it for 800 years since the House of Grimaldi came into being, basically around the year 800. And that's when pirates from Genoa, Italy, snuck into Monaco, disguised as Franciscan monks, and took over the Principality. And over the years, many tragic things have happened, especially in modern times. The death of Princess Grace, she drove off a cliff above Monaco in 1982, and she's only 52 years old. Her daughter, Princess Caroline's husband, Stefano Casaraghi, he was killed in a boating accident off Monaco, which many people thought was very suspicious. There have been a lot of larger-than-life tragedies coming out of Monaco for decades. But despite its beautiful Mediterranean setting, most residents chose to live in Monaco for more practical reasons. A lot of the people live there not because they really love it. They live there because their husbands worked for Gazprom in Moscow or, you know, one of the biggest banks in England. And they are there to save money on taxes. But it's a crazy, wild, interesting place. And I grew to love it. A crazy, wild place. One that presents a tempting target for the Pink Panthers and one where they struck more than once, with their hallmark speed and precision. They hit a jewelry shop, smashing the windows with hammers and making off with 32 watches worth half a million dollars. They even took the luxury watch off the wrist of a footballer who happened to be in the shop at the time. In Monaco, the amount that they're pulling in these, like, two-minute heist is so astonishing, I think people can't really grasp it. It's like magic. Which brings us to Inspector Malberger. 
André Malberger was a young detective who'd had a fast rise in the French police. He had recently captured a ring of major drug dealers in Marseille. This high-profile success is what got him hired to head up Monaco's police department. Malberger was handsome and he was confident. New Yorker writer David Samuels described him as, quote, a cross between a Hollywood movie star and a cop with a deep tan, strong shoulders and bad teeth. The Pink Panthers had been making moves in the south of France and it was Malberger's idea to call in Interpol for help. In an interview on Dateline NBC, he talks about the wisdom of his decision, especially for a place like Monaco. It's a small territory. We have a lot of police. We have CCTV all around. And the population has no fear to call the police and say, I saw something that it's not uh, normal. Why did you think that Interpol was the right way to go? Because it's the only organization where we can share all the information about this. I asked Interpol to organize a meeting between all the countries who had to know robberies made by the Pink Panthers. Captain Hervé Conan of the Paris police collaborated with Malberger and thought quite highly of him. He was a very smart guy because before the robbery in Monaco, in fact, there were no international channel about the Pink Panthers. And he has created this meeting that happens every year with all the law enforcement involved in this topic. André, he was very clever because the other thing it is for Monaco, having a robbery is impossible. It is a city where people are coming because they have a lot of money and they want safety. If you got a robbery in Monaco, it is a danger for the city, in fact, for the uh, prestige. Malbacher was well aware. As he explained in a New Yorker profile on the Big Panthers, in Monaco, we cannot let anything happen. And so, when Monaco's Prince Albert recruits André Malberger in 2006 as his director of public security, he is looking for someone who will be able to handle this uniquely damaging problem. And Malberger fits the profile to perfection. No American police chief looks anything like this guy. Dana Kennedy. He himself is something out of central casting, if you think of any French gendarmes you might have seen in the movies, they have a certain style and a certain dignity and a certain elan and a certain dashing nature to them. He's very French in that he takes himself extremely seriously, no joking around. He had a mission to accomplish. He accomplished it in Marseille with the drug connection traffickers. And then when Prince Albert called him in to basically become the Pink Panther connection guy in Monaco, I mean, he rose to the occasion. And Mulberger's brainchild, this Pink Panther task force, is a serious response to what he knows is a serious issue. Less than a year into his appointment, the Pink Panthers struck the Cerebelli jewelry store in Monte Carlo's Casino Square, despite the presence of some 400 closed-circuit cameras. It's a huge embarrassment to Monaco. I just finished discussing how much of really a police security state Monaco is, how the surveillance is unbelievable there. So the fact that the Pink Panthers could pull off a heist there under the nose of Prince Albert and people who pay millions to live in a place they think is secure, they had to have this task force. So the citizenry wouldn't, you know, basically rise up in arms. I mean, you pay a premium 
to live in Monaco for number one, so you don't have to pay taxes, and number two, so you can feel safe. So it's highly embarrassing to have these Eastern European thieves just walk in and steal jewels. So they had to do something to make people think that they're really doing something. And I think he obviously was. He was a top level guy. And for a while, André Malberger is a smashing success. In 2008, he manages to arrest Pink Panther Dushko Poznan. A car happens to run over Dushko's foot while he's standing on a Monaco street corner. He's taken to the hospital, recognized from an Interpol Red Notice photo, and summarily arrested. The arrest sparks speculation that Malberger had staged the accident to sweep the panther off the streets and into custody. Malberger himself denied it, but it was suspiciously bad luck for Dushko. In 2009, Malberger helps track down another Pink Panther who had robbed that luxury watch store in Monaco two years earlier. They trace him to the sketchy hotel in Paris, where Detective Hervé Conan makes the arrest. That same year, Malberger's team catches three other Pink Panthers in the parking lot of a Monaco casino, the night before their planned jewel heist. This is all welcome news for the people of Monaco, not to mention Malberger's boss, the prince. But Chief Inspector under Malberger would end up making some dangerous enemies and some dangerous friends. What happened to Andre Mulberger is a sort of quintessential Monaco story. Incidentally, Dana Kennedy pronounces his name Mulberger. Others used the French, Malberger. On one hand, Mulberger um, was a good guy and that he cooked down on the Pink Panthers and was well known for making arrests there. But the fact that he had Russian ties is absolutely, unfortunately, or fortunately, completely business as usual in Monaco. Russians. The plot thickens. There are a ton of Russians in Monaco. They have enormous influence. There are billionaires from Russia who have Monaco residency because obviously they don't pay income taxes. Balbergem defended his socializing with the wealthy Russians of Monaco in an interview with French Vanity Fair, saying, I quote, Yes, I hang out with Russians. So is it forbidden? They're rich? Does that necessarily make them mafia? They're men of my generation. They have studied in the United States, in London or Switzerland. Why should we stop talking to them? End of quote. But Malberger's defensive stance tells us that he saw how these friendships might have an effect on his carefully honed, sterling reputation as an incorruptible cop. The problem is the fact that he had a lot of suspect Russian and Eastern European friends himself means that we don't know if he was entirely a good guy or what. I mean, everything is very murky in Monaco for a reason. There's way too much money and way too many people who got their money in mysterious ways for anybody to ever totally see what's going on. And the amount of skullduggery and corruption is kind of off the charts there. Prince Albert, since the death of his father in 2005, has really tried to clean up Monaco's image. And he succeeded in many ways, but it's still true. It's still a sunny place for shady people. And Yulberger 
is right up there with the shady people. And the fact that he had Russian friends and he had a Russian girlfriend is kind of par for the course. It's not unusual. What would be unusual if you had a Monaco cop with no tie whatsoever to that world. Okay, so Malberger made friends with some Russians, but he also made one serious enemy. My name is Robert Erringer, and I have a 45-year background in what I call the information business, and that encompasses journalism as well as intelligence. The recording you'll hear of our interview with Robert Erringer is not of the highest quality. He insisted on being recorded only over the phone. I was an investigative reporter for British newspapers through the 1980s. Uh, in the 1990s, I did private sector intelligence. And in 2002, I was retained by Prince Albert of Monaco to be his intelligence advisor. At that time, the prince was the hereditary prince, meaning he wasn't the ruling prince yet. In 2005, he became the ruling prince when his father, Prince Rainier, passed. And at that time, I created for Albert the unofficial Monaco Intelligence Service. We should say from the outset that Erringer, who once had a close connection to Prince Albert, has been on the outs with him ever since he left Monaco in 2007. After that, he sued the prince for breach of contract, claiming that he was not paid for his final invoice. And Prince Albert filed a number of lawsuits against Erringer for defamation in his gossipy blog posts. The subject of one of those lawsuits was actually André Malberger. But let's go back to a happier time in the relationship between Robert Erringer and Prince Albert of Monaco. We got to know each other in the late 1980s when I lived in Monaco for a couple of years. And thereafter, I moved to Washington and got involved in intelligence work. I let him know what I was doing. He was rather intrigued, and when he had a question one day about a, a particular Russian who wanted to invest in Monaco's football team, he asked me to investigate the background of that individual. I did, discovered that he was dirty. I then pointed out to Albert that the Russian influence in the south of France was deepening and that it was expected that the Russian influence would expand and, and try to move it to Monaco. It's the president Putin had indeed fixated on Monaco as a fabulous place from which to launder money and conduct intelligence operations. Russian oligarchs were looking for new places to park their money. And Monaco, with its friendly tax laws, seemed perfect. Erringer claims he predicted that this influx of Russian money would bring more crime and corruption to Monaco. And off the back of that, he says, he sold his services to Prince Albert. In June 2002, he retained me to be his intelligence advisor and keep an eye on the Russians who were trying to muscle their way into Monaco, along with other seedy characters who were attempting to penetrate the royal court, that is Albert's orbit. Erringer was in the position to run his own show, until André Malberger arrived. André Malberger arrived from France at a very opportune moment. I met him soon after he became police chief. It should have been a time when he could have done very, very well there, because by that time, my service to Albert and the unofficial intelligence service we created had put together a blueprint of everything that was going wrong in Monaco with regard to money laundering and corruption and Russian influence. 
I think it bothered Mulberger quite a bit that an American was running Albert's intelligence when he felt that it should be his role and he was jealous of the relationship I had with Albert and wanted that for himself. So although he pretended to be a friend and supporter of what we were doing, it later appeared to me that he was working behind the scenes against us. Robert Erringer felt he was suddenly in a power struggle. Mulberger tried to make that look like I was stepping on the toes of his police department and stealing their information. So he would do things like go to Albert and complain that I was taking information out of their files and calling it our own, which was actually quite incorrect. But Erringer doesn't think Mulberger started out corrupt, if in fact he was ever corrupted. In my opinion, he came to Monaco with good intentions, at least that's the feeling I had when I first met him. And I think he actually wanted to act on some of the information, but I believe he got neutered by the powers that be in Monaco, the ministers, especially the chief judicial officer, who was terribly corrupt himself. Erringer says these Monaco officials warned Malbergé to back off, to stop his investigations. At our last meeting, he seemed rather upset, and he said they want me only to direct traffic. And so I, I think at some stage he thought, well, obviously I can't investigate crime, and they don't want me to, so I might as well just become part of it. And I believe that that's exactly what happened. Eventually, Chief Inspector Malberger did make friends with some Russians. But it was his relationship with a former beauty queen from Belarus that would be his downfall. I mean, you have to talk about the circumstances under which he had to leave his job as police chief. Uh, He did not resign. He was fired after it was exposed that he had a relationship with a beauty queen from Belarus and had been discovered to have been cavorting with her on a boat. And uh, those photographs came out. He was married. Uh, He was disgraced. When Erringer says it was exposed regarding Malbush's affair with the beauty queen, and that the, quote, photos came out. What he means is that he, Erringer, posted the photos of Malberger on vacation with a woman on his blog and created a scandal that consumed Monaco and much of Europe. The photos, he says, were sent to him by some unnamed source. He tried to save his job. He went to see Prince Albert and uh, couldn't do it. Prince Albert did not take the scandal well. Malberger was informed that he had to find an elegant way to resign. An official press release announced his departure, saying he was starting a new career in the private sector. In late June 2013, Malberger meets some friends at Cap d'Ail, a popular beach just west of Monaco. I know where he was because I've been there myself. It's the one town over from Monaco, one of the most gorgeous beaches in that area of the French and Monaco Riviera. It's kind of a, a little hidden gem. The locals know it, tourists don't know it, which is, makes it all the better. And he was there for lunch and he was very tight with certain Russians. He had Russian friends, he had a Russian girlfriend, and there was a yacht that some of his Russian friends were on. And I don't know if he was dared to go out and swim to the yacht or not, because people do that a lot. So he's with this group of Russians. They go to a lunch spot in Cap Dye. Uh, I've been there, I know how it works. You park your boat out in the water, and then you shuttle in. 
He has a long three-hour lunch in which he's plied with booze. They know what a macho guy he is, and they challenge him. But you can't swim out to that boat. And Mulberger, being an arrogant prick, full of bravado, does so. I mean, everybody travels by yacht in this area, and it's really typical to be on a yacht and pull up at a certain place for lunch. I don't know how far the boat was, but it's not unusual to go swim out to a boat. It happens all the time. But this time, when he was swimming out to the boat, this high-level, prestigious, just-retired police investigator was swimming out to meet his friends on the yacht, and somehow another boat came by, cut him off, and he was cut by the propeller and killed. I can't imagine a more hideous, but yet in some ways fitting death for someone who was as powerful as this guy really was in Monaco. I mean, he had this incredible career, first in Marseille, French connection, drug trafficking cop in Marseille. Then he's brought to Monaco to run the Pink Panther task force. It's Prince Albert himself who appoints him, and he does a bang up job. And just after he retired from this incredible career, he met with a horrible and grisly death. I think he may have promised things to certain Russians that he could no longer deliver. In my opinion, he was murdered by Russians. I don't know which Russians. So I believe the whole thing was set up and that when he swam out to the boat, they purposely backed into him and he was murdered. Is it because he was blackmailing certain Russians with information that he had possession of from his job as police chief? I think that's one possibility. Uh, another is that he had made deals with Russians that he could no longer deliver on because he was no longer police chief and they wanted payback. So if you could just picture this, this big, strong French police investigator swimming through the waves to meet this yacht, to meet his friends, maybe have a drink with them on their yacht. He's cut down by a boat and the propeller is thought to have sliced the back of his head and almost severed one of his legs. I mean, you can't even imagine, you couldn't write the script for the death of the man who took on the Pink Panthers in the south of France. Investigators could never confirm whether another boat struck Malberger or if the yacht he was swimming to somehow backed into him. Whatever the truth behind the event, it was a shocking end to Inspector Malberger. There are a lot of incredibly crazy stories that happen in Monaco. Monaco and the south of France are run on myth. They're run on fantasy. The local press is really controlled by the local powers. And they're not going to spend too much time looking into any of this. They don't want people to get too deep into the dark side. But the dark side of Monaco is always there, and it has been there for centuries. So this poor police chief's downfall, in many ways, people see as just another side of the dark side of Monaco. Andre Malberger may have gotten on the wrong side of the wrong people and paid the price. But his pursuit of the Pink Panthers had proven highly effective. Dushko Poznan, one of the members of the Dubai team, arrested. Three other Pink Panthers in an aborted heist of a Monaco casino, arrested. And Milan Lepoya, arrested 
for the Liechtenstein job and the heist at the Wafi Mall, thanks to Malbridge's efforts to involve Interpol. Milan would face justice, even if Malbridge would face a grisly end on a beautiful beach just west of Monaco. Coming up next on Infamous International, the Pink Panther's story. Yepoya tried to live a quiet life, let's say, after what happened in, in Dubai. He got married, he got a dog, he got another dog for his mom and sister. The return of the Pink Panther, Milan Lepoya. These guys really needed some other revenue and they understood now it's time to move to cocaine smuggling. The criminal world of niche is changing and things are getting dangerous. Organizing a heist is very similar to organizing uh, a murder as well. And the Pink Panthers discover how hard it is to keep your hands clean in a dirty world of international crime. They got involved in this open war that split the whole Balkan underworld. That's next time on Infamous International, the Pink Panthers story. Infamous International, The Pink Panther's Story, was produced by Best Case Studios in association with Coda Story. Hosted by me, Natalia Antalava, and written by Katrina Wolf, Adam Pinkis, Suzanne Myers, and David Markowitz, with help from Brent Katz and Matt Levin. For Best Case Studios, executive producer, Adam Pinkis. Senior producer, David Markowitz. Producer, Katrina Wolf, Associate Producer, Hannah Leibovitz-Lockhart. And Consulting Producers, Julie Goldstein and Louis Spiegler. For Coda Story, reporting by Alan Greenberg, with Associate Producer, Rebecca Robinson. Edited and sound designed by Galen Mullins and Max Michael Miller. Music by Dave Harrington. Archival Producers, Magda Gora and Paul Dallas. This has been an exactly right production. Executive Producers, Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hartstark, and Danielle Kramer, with consulting producer Kyle Ryan.